Section 24 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elsie Selwyn. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Ethics of Human Subjects Research, A Historical Perspective, Chapter 4, Part 2 Factors that Influence or Limit Ethical Evaluation Several considerations influence and can limit the ability to reach ethical conclusions about rightness and wrongness and praise and blame. Some of these may be more likely to be present in efforts to evaluate the past, but all can arise when attempts are made to evaluate contemporary events as well. The most important such limitations relevant to the advisory committee's evaluations are these. 1. Lack of evidence as to whether ethical standards were followed or violated, and if so, by whom. And 2. The presence of conflicting obligations. The three kinds of ethical standards adopted by the committee can yield the conclusion that an individual or collective agent had or has a particular obligation, but this conclusion is not by itself sufficient to determine in any particular case whether anything wrong was done or whether any individual or collective agent deserves blame. Lack of Evidence Sound valuations cannot be made without sufficient evidence. Sometimes it cannot be determined if anything wrong was done because key facts about a case are missing or unclear. Other times there may be sufficient evidence that a wrong was done, but insufficient evidence to determine who performed the action that was wrong, or who authorized the policy that was wrong, or who was responsible for a practice that was wrong. This is why the advisory committee strove during our tenure to reconstruct the details of the circumstances under which the human radiation experiments themselves took place. However, these records are incomplete, and even the copious documentation we have gathered does not tell as complete a story as sometimes was needed to make ethical evaluations. Conflicting Obligations because we all have more than one obligation, because they can conflict with one another, and because some obligations are weightier than others, a particular obligation that is otherwise morally binding may not be binding in a particular circumstance, all things considered. For example, a government official might be obligated to follow certain routine procedures, but in a time of dire emergency, he or she might have a weightier obligation to avert great harm to many people by taking direct action that disregards the procedures. Similarly, a physician is obligated to keep his patient's condition confidential, but in some cases it is permissible and even obligatory to breach this confidence, for example, in order to prevent the spread of deadly infectious diseases. In such cases, the agent has done nothing wrong in failing to do what he or she would ordinarily be morally obligated to do. That obligation has been validly overridden by what is in the particular circumstances a weightier obligation. The presence of conflicting obligations may limit our ability to make moral judgments when, for example, it is difficult to determine in a particular case which obligation should take precedence. At the same time, however, if it can be determined which obligation is weightier, then the presence of this factor does not serve as an impediment to evaluation. Rather, it can lead to the conclusion that nothing morally wrong was done, and that no one should be blamed. 
an example of a potentially overriding obligation that is especially important for the advisory committee's work is the possibility that, during the period of the radiation experiments, obligations to protect national security were sometimes more morally weighty than obligations to comply with standards for human subjects research. If the threat were great enough, considerations of national security grounded in the basic ethical principle that one ought to promote welfare and prevent harm could justifiably override the basic ethical principle of not using people as mere means to the ends of others, as well as the more specific rule of research ethics requiring the voluntary consent of human subjects. Had such an overriding obligation to protect national security existed during the period we studied, it also would have relieved responsible individuals of any blame otherwise attributable to them for using individuals in experiments that were crucial to the national defense. Especially during the late 1940s and early 1950s, and then again in the first years of the early 1960s, our country was engaged in an intense competition with the Soviet Union. A high premium was placed upon military superiority, not only in conventional warfare, but also in atomic, biological, and chemical warfare. The DOD's Wilson Memorandum, when originally promulgated in 1953, declared that it was directed toward the need to pursue atomic, biological, and chemical warfare experiments for defensive purposes in these fields. It would not be surprising, therefore, to discover that, in the government's policies and rules for human subject research, Provisions had been made for the possibility that obligations to protect national security might conflict with and take priority over obligations to protect human subjects, and thus that such policies would have included exceptions for national security needs. The moral justification would also not be surprising that, in order to preserve the American way of life with its precious freedoms, some sacrifices of individual rights and interests would have to be made for the greater good. The very phrase, Cold War, expressed the conviction that we already were engaged in a life-or-death struggle, and that in war actions may be permissible, that would be impermissible, in peacetime. Survival in the treacherous and heavily armed post-World War II era might demand no less, repugnant as those actions otherwise might be to many Americans. The advisory committee did not undertake an inquiry to determine whether during either World War II or the Cold War, there were ever circumstances in which considerations of national security might have justified infringements of their rights and protections that would otherwise be enjoyed by American citizens in the context of human experimentation. Our sources for answering this question were limited to materials pertinent to specific human radiation experiments in declassified defense-related memorandums and transcripts. With regard to the experiments, particular cases are reviewed in Part 2 of this report, and those experiments that took place under circumstances most closely tied to national security considerations, such as the plutonium injections, see Chapter 5, it does not appear that such considerations would have barred satisfying the basic elements of voluntary consent. Thus, for instance, although the word plutonium was classified until the end of World War II, Subjects could still have been asked their permission after having been told that subjects in the experiment would be injected with a radioactive substance with which medical science had had little experience and which might be dangerous, and that would not help them personally, but that the experiment was important to protecting the health of the people involved in the war effort or safeguarding the national defense. 
with regard to defense-related documents, in none of the memorandums or transcripts of various agencies did we encounter a formal national security exception to conditions under which human subjects may be used. In none of these materials does an official, military or civilian, argue for the position that individual rights may be justifiably overridden owing to the needs of the nation in the Cold War. In none of them is an official position expressed that the Nuremberg Code or other conventions concerning human subjects could be overridden because of national security needs. Some government officials, military and civilian, may have personally advocated the view that obligations to protect national security were more important than obligations to protect the rights and interests of human subjects. It is, of course, possible that the priority placed on national security was so great in some circles of the government that the ability of security interests to override other national interests was implicitly assumed rather than explicitly articulated. It is a matter of historical record that some initiatives undertaken by government officials at some agencies during this period adopted the view that greater national purposes justified the exploitation of individuals. Notorious examples are the CIA's MKULTRA project and the Army's psychochemical experiments, which subjected unsuspecting people to experiments with LSD and other substances. See Chapter 3. However, even the internal investigation of the Department of Defense into these incidents in the 1970s concluded that these incidents were violations of government policy, not recognized legitimate exceptions to it. During the era of the Manhattan Project, the United States and its allies were engaged in a declared and just war against the Axis powers. Regarding the possibility of a wartime exception, it is well documented that during World War II, the Committee on Medical Research, CMR, of the Executive Office of the President funded research on various problems confronting U.S. troops in the field, including dysentery, malaria, and influenza. This research involved the use of many subjects whose capacity to consent to be a volunteer was questionable at best, including children, the mentally retarded, and prisoners. However, when the CMR considered proposed gonorrhea experiments that would have involved deliberately exposing prisoners to infection, the resulting discussion about the ethics of research exhibited a cautious attitude. The conclusion was that only volunteers could be used, and that they had to be carefully informed about the risks and benefits of participation. In these and other classified conversations, the CMR took the position that care is to be taken with human subjects including conscientious objectors and military personnel. It is difficult to reconcile these deliberations with the fact that many subjects of CMR-funded research were not true volunteers. Whether the CMR believed that the needs of a country at war justified the use of people who could not be true volunteers as research subjects is not known. It would, however, be an error to conclude that even in contexts where important national security interests are at stake, such as during wartime, a conflict between obligations to protect national defense and obligations to protect human subjects ought always to be resolved in favor of national security. The question of whether any and all means are morally acceptable for the sake of national security and the national defense is a complex one. Even in the case of a representative democracy that is not an aggressor, it would be wrong to assume that there are no moral constraints in time of war. 
all of the major religious and secular traditions concerning the morality of warfare recognize that there are substantial limitations upon the manner in which even a just war is conducted the issue of the morality of total warfare for a just cause including the use of medical science was beyond the scope of the advisory committee's charter deliberations and expertise distinguishing between the wrongness of actions and policies and the blameworthiness of agents factors that influence or limit judgments about blame the factors we have just discussed lack of evidence and the presence of conflicting obligations place limits on our ability to make judgments about both the rightness and wrongness of actions and the blameworthiness of the agents responsible for them some factors however place limits only on our ability to make judgments about the blameworthiness of agents even in cases where actions or policies are clearly morally wrong it may be uncertain how blameworthy the agents who conducted or promulgated them are or in fact whether they are blameworthy at all some factors make it difficult to affix blame other factors can mitigate or lessen the blame actors deserve four such factors are of particular concern to the committee one factual ignorance two culturally induced ignorance about relevant moral considerations three evolution in the interpretations and specification of moral principles and four indeterminacy in an organization's division of labor with the result that it is unclear who has responsibility for implementing the commitments of the organization factual ignorance Factual ignorance refers to circumstances in which some information relevant to the moral assessment of a situation is not available to the agent. There are many reasons that this may be so, including that the information in question is beyond the scope of human knowledge at the time, or that there was no good reason to think that a particular item of information was relevant or significant. However, just because an agent's ignorance of morally relevant information leads him or her to commit a morally wrong act, it does not follow that the person is not blameworthy for that act. The agent is blameworthy if a reasonable, prudent person in that agent's position should have been aware that some information was required prior to action, and the information could have been obtained without undue effort or cost on his or her part. Some people are in positions that obligate them to make special efforts to acquire knowledge, such as those who are directly responsible for the well-being of others. Determinations of culpable and non-culpable factual ignorance often turn on whether the competent person in the field at that time had that knowledge or had the means to acquire it without undue burdens. Culturally Induced Moral Ignorance Sometimes cultural factors can prevent individuals from discerning what they are morally required to do and can therefore mitigate the blame we would otherwise place on individuals for failing to do what they ought to do. In some cases, these factors may have been at work in the past, but are no longer operative in the present because of changes in culture over time. An individual may, like other members of the culture, be morally ignorant. Because of features of his or her deeply enculturated beliefs, the individual may be unable to recognize, for example, that certain people, such as members of another race, deserve equal respect, or even that they are people with rights. Moral ignorance can impair moral judgment and hence may result in a failure to act morally. In extreme cases, a culture may instill a moral ignorance so profound that we speak of cultural moral blindness. In some societies, the dominant culture may recognize that it is wrong to exploit people, but fail to recognize certain classes of individuals as being people. 
some of those committed to the ideology of slavery may have been morally blind in just this way and their culture may have induced this blindness here it is crucial to distinguish between culpable and non-culpable moral ignorance the fact that one's moral ignorance is instilled by one's culture does not by itself mean that one is not responsible for being ignorant nor does it necessarily render one blameless for actions or omissions that result from this ignorance what matters is not whether the erroneous belief that constitutes the moral ignorance was instilled by one's culture what matters is the extent to which the individual can be held responsible for maintaining this belief as opposed to correcting it where opportunities for remedying culturally induced moral ignorance are available, a person may rightly be held responsible for remaining in ignorance and for the wrongful behavior that issues from his or her mistaken beliefs. People who maintain their culturally induced moral ignorance in the face of repeated opportunities for correction typically do so by indulging in unjustifiable rationalizations, such as those associated with racist attitudes. They show an excessive partiality to their own opinions and interests, a willful rejection of facts that they find inconvenient or disturbing, an inflated sense of their own self-worth relative to others, a lack of sensitivity to the predicament of others, and the like. These moral failings are widely recognized as such across a broad spectrum of cultural values and ethical traditions, both religious and secular. Only if an agent could not be reasonably expected to remedy his or her culturally induced moral ignorance would such ignorance exculpate his conduct. But even in cases in which the individual could not be blamed for persisting in ignorance, this would do nothing to show that the actions or omissions resulting from his or her ignorance were not wrong. Non-culpable moral ignorance only exculpates the agent. It does not make the wrong acts right evolution and interpretation of ethical principles there is another respect in which the dependence of our perceptions of right and wrong on our cultural context has a bearing on the advisory committee's evaluations while basic ethical principles do not change interpretations and applications of basic ethical principles as they are expressed in more specific rules of conduct do evolve over time through processes of cultural change Recognizing that more specific moral rules do change has implications for how we judge the past. For example, the current requirement of informed consent is the result of evolution, acceptance of the simple idea that medical treatment requires the consent of the patient, at least in the case of competent adults, seems to have proceeded by a considerable interval, the more complex notion that informed consent is required. Furthermore, the notion of informed consent itself has undergone refinement and development through common law rulings, through analyses and explanations of these rulings in the scholarly legal literature, through philosophical treatments of the key concepts emerging from legal analyses, and through guidelines and reports by government and professional bodies. For example, as early as 1914, the duty to obtain consent to medical treatment was established in American law. Every human being of adult years and sound mind has the right to determine what shall be done with his own body, and a surgeon who performs an operation without his patient's consent commits an assault. End quote. However, it was not until 1957 that the courts decreed that consent must be informed, and this 1957 ruling was only the beginning of a long debate about what it means for consent to be informed. 
thus it is probably fair to say that the current understanding of informed consent is more sophisticated and what is required of physicians and scientists more demanding than both the preceding requirement of consent and earlier interpretations of what counts as informed consent as the content of the concept has evolved so has the scope of the corresponding obligation on the part of the professionals for this reason it would be inappropriate to blame clinicians or researchers of the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties of not adhering to the details of a standard that emerged through a complex process of cultural change that was to span decades at the same time however it remains appropriate to hold them to the general requirements of the basic moral principles that underlie informed consent not treating others as mere means promoting the welfare of others and respecting self-determination inferring bureaucratic responsibilities it is often unclear in complex organizations such as government agencies who has the responsibility for implementing the organization's policies and rules this is particularly common in new and changing organizations where it is more likely than in stable organizations that there will be interconnecting lines of authority among employees and officials and job descriptions that are not explicit with respect to responsibility for implementation of policies and initiatives when policies are not properly implemented in organizations that fit this description it often is difficult to assign blame to particular individuals an employee or official of an agency cannot fairly be blamed for a failed or poorly executed policy unless it can be determined with confidence that the person had responsibility for implementing that policy and should have known that he or she had this responsibility the importance of distinguishing wrongdoing from blameworthiness judgments of wrongdoing and judgments of blameworthiness have very different implications even where a wrong was done it does not follow that anyone should be blamed for the wrong this is because there are factors including the four we have just described that can lessen or remove blame from an agent for a morally wrong act but that cannot in any way make the wrong act right if experiments violated basic ethical principles institutional or organizational policies or rules of professional ethics then they were and will always be wrong whether and how much anyone should be blamed for these wrongs are separate questions the distinction between the moral status of experiments and that of the individuals who are involved with conducting funding or sponsoring them also has important implications for our own time for a society to make moral progress individuals must be able to exercise moral judgment about their actions it is important for social actors to be critical about their activities even those in which they have been engaged for some time it is important for them to be able to step back and analyze their actions as right or wrong if we did not distinguish between actions and agents then people may feel that once they have perceived their moral error it is too late for them to change their ways to object to the ongoing activity and to try to rally others in support of reform for any generation to initiate morally indicated reforms it must be able to take this critical stance as we see in part three of this report even now there are aspects of our society's use of human subjects that should be critically examined the actions we ourselves have performed do not condemn us as moral agents unless we refuse to open ourselves to the possibility that we have in some ways been in error as we have said even if we are exculpated by our own culturally induced moral ignorance that does not make our wrong acts right 
even if we must accept a measure of blame for our actions we are free to achieve a critical assessment and to initiate and participate in needed change the significance of judgments about blameworthiness the committee believes that its first task is to evaluate the rightness or wrongness of the actions practices and policies involved in the human radiation experiments that occurred from nineteen forty four to nineteen seventy four however it is also important to consider whether judgments ascribing blame to individuals or groups or organizations can responsibly be made and whether they ought to be made there are three main reasons for judging culpability as well as wrongness first a crucial part of the committee's task is to make recommendations that will reduce the risk of errors and abuses in human experimentation in the future on the basis of its diagnoses of what went wrong in the past a complete and accurate diagnosis requires not only stating what wrongs were done but also explaining who was responsible for the wrongs occurring to do this is likely to yield the judgment that some individuals were morally blameworthy second unless judgments of culpability are made about particular individuals one important means of deterring future wrongs will be precluded people contemplating unethical behavior will presumably be more likely to refrain from it other things being equal if they believe that they as individuals may be held accountable for wrongdoing than if they can assure themselves that at most their government or their particular government agency or their profession may be subject to blame third ethical evaluation generally involves both evaluation of the rightness or wrongness of actions and the praiseworthiness or blameworthiness of agents and the absence of any explicit exemption of the latter sorts of judgment in our mandate the committee believes it would be arbitrary to exclude them having made a case for judgments of culpability as well as wrongness the committee believes it is very important to distinguish carefully between judging that an individual is culpable for a particular action and judging that he or she is a person of bad moral character justifiable judgments of character must be based on accurate information about long-standing and stable patterns of action in a number of areas of a person's life under a variety of different situations such patterns cannot usually be inferred from information about a few isolated actions a person performs in one particular department of his or her life unless the actions are so extreme as to be on the order of heinous crimes. End of section 24